legendary basketball coach John Wooden uh, from UCLA was fond of saying, it's what you uh, learn after you know it all that really counts. Wooden was a guy who took some really good players uh, with some really big egos and some challenging personalities, and he, and he molded them together, and he, and he shaped them into 10 NCAA championship teams. And along the way, he, uh, he coached 24 All-Americans. One of those was a guy by the name of Bill Walton, who came to UCLA. He was a bit of a hippie. He uh, had long hair and a big bushy beard. In one of his first meetings, he's meeting with the coach, and, and uh, they had talking about practice and everything. Coach says, well, before you come to practice, you're going to have to go home and uh, get a haircut and shave your beard. And uh, Bill Walton says, I don't think so. I have the right to wear my facial hair any way I want to wear my facial hair. And John Wooden looked at him and says, well, I'm, I'm really glad to know that, Bill. He says, I really admire young people with a deep sense of personal conviction who are willing to follow that, that personal conviction. He said, we're really going to miss you. <laughs> Bill uh, left, and he returned about 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, uh, all shaven and, and clean cut. Um, it was the first of really many uh, uncomfortable conversations and confrontations that these two had together. They were like uh, oil and water just kind of mixing. They were very different people. But when Walton left uh, the program after he graduated, he became the highest paid professional athlete of any sport at the time. And yet Walton would say that it was nothing compared to the quality of life that he experienced while playing for his head coach, John Wooden. That first meeting with his coach, Bill had a decision to make. Was he going to just kind of continue to be content that he knew what was right for himself and he knew what was best and just to continue to go his way and go find another coach to play with? Or was he going to be willing to get uncomfortable, to step outside of his comfort zone and learn from one of the best to become one of the best? And I think that that's really a decision all of us have to make, no matter what area it is that we might want to try to grow in or where we might want to learn, whether we want to become a better father or mother or husband or wife or a, a business owner or teacher or follower of Jesus. It's especially true, right, if we're going to keep learning and growing in our faith, especially when we reach a point where maybe we think we already know it all. We already know all there is. New learning is one thing. But having what we think we know corrected suggests that maybe we were wrong. It's, uh, it can be uncomfortable, and it can be quite challenging for us to make room for like new evidence that somebody brings to us that maybe contradicts what we believe or how we think about life. It can be difficult to listen to another person's experience or other people's experience or trust facts that they're presenting in, in an unbiased way with a willingness to maybe be open to hear what they have to share with us and to be open to the possibility that maybe we need to change the way we believe or the way we see the world. But so often, I think the tendency is for us to dig in and to get a little bit defensive or to start to maybe explain why it is that we're so passionate about what we believe to be true, even when the evidence suggests that we just might be wrong. Being a follower of Jesus requires that we become lifelong learners, and uh, often I think he puts people in place, takes us to places and puts us in uncomfortable situations because he wants to show us something more about who he is and about the work that he's doing. We need to make room 
for this new experience. That's what this series, Make Room, is about. We're in our second week, and it's really about the bandwidth. Like, how wide is our bandwidth of people that we're willing to learn from? And what needs to be true of me if I'm going to maybe increase that bandwidth a little bit more so I can uh, learn more of what God wants to show me and teach me? What needs to be true of me? And this morning, we're going to talk about one of the things that needs to be true of us is we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. John tells a story in his gospel about a Samaritan woman who has a really uncomfortable conversation with Jesus one day at a well. And in the midst of this conversation, you're going to notice that she could have walked away at any time. She didn't have to stay engaged in this conversation, but she chose to stay engaged. And it changed not only her life, but it changed the lives of everyone in her community. And the story's found in the fourth chapter of John's book. And uh, John tells us to kind of set the story up that Jesus is going around Judea and uh, he's growing in popularity. At least there's rumors spreading like that he's gaining more followers than John the Baptist. And the Pharisees are starting to take note. So it says that, that Jesus decided he was going to go, uh, I think, let things kind of settle down a little bit. He wasn't going to try to create a confrontation yet with the Pharisees, so he decided to go home, and he was going to let the dust settle. And so the story, pick it up in verse 4, it says Jesus had to go home through Samaria. And, and I don't know about you, but when I read that Jesus had to do something, I wonder why did Jesus have to do anything? He's Jesus, right? He could do whatever he wants to do. But it says he has to go. So I, I thought, why is this, that he had to go this way? Certainly there were other ways to go home, as indicated. Um, and a lot of people offer different explanations about this. Uh, for one, this was the shortest route. Going through Samaria was the shortest route from Judea to Galilee. It would, it would cut a whole week of travel off if he would just go through Samaria rather than around Samaria. But what I've always learned was that the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria because of the deep hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And the Jews felt like if they went through Samaria and they encountered Samaritans, they would become ceremonially unclean and wouldn't be able to worship and participate in, in their religious practices because the Samaritans were a people that uh, worshipped God, but they also worshipped other gods and had other ideas about worship. So if they encountered a Samaritan, they became unclean. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. So some say Jesus had to go. Well, it was the Holy Spirit that was telling Jesus he had to go this way because he had this divine appointment with the woman at the well. But when you read the story, there's nothing in the story that suggests that's the case. So I think it's entirely possible that Jesus is going through Samaria to avoid Pharisees. He knows that these religious elite, that the super religious, there's no way they'd be caught dead in Samaria because they wouldn't want to risk becoming unclean themselves. I also wonder if Jesus went this way because he wanted to teach his disciples something about God. That God isn't a God of barriers. That he knocks down walls that separate us. And he wants us to be able to engage with people who are different than us, who live differently, who, who act differently, who think differently than us. It's not good for us to live isolated lives, and it's not right to, have any, to not have anything to do with another group of people just because of the way they think or the way they live. And I wonder if Jesus isn't trying to teach his disciples that if they're going to follow him and they're going to grow as his followers, they're going to have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And just maybe they would have something to learn from this woman at the well. So Jesus and his friends are in Samaria, 
And Jesus sends the disciples into town to get some food, and he leans up against this well to take a rest when this Samaritan woman comes out for some water. Pick it up in verse 7. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus simply asks for a drink of water. And the woman's response immediately suggests that she is not comfortable with this situation and having this conversation. She's getting a little bit defensive. She's starting to argue. And what she doesn't know is that she's about to get even more uncomfortable. Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This woman, has, this woman has not had good experiences with men. And we don't know if these husbands, if some of them have passed away, if she's a widow, doesn't say that she's a widow. It also doesn't say that she's guilty of doing anything wrong. But what we do know is that Jesus' comments had to cut to her heart. Because every experience she's had with a man has ended in disappointment and in failure. And now there's another man standing in front of her, a Jewish man no less, claiming to have what she needs, to have answers that can help her for her life. And she doesn't appear to be buying it. She says, where are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a bucket yourself. And the well's deep. Well, I don't see a big long rope like, so you can scoop that water out. It's almost like she's saying, why are you mocking me? I didn't even think Jews were supposed to talk with Samaritans, let alone a man talk with a woman. But I'll play along. If you have this water, give it to me so that I don't have to keep coming back here to fill my water bucket. When Jesus says, go and get your husband, I don't have a husband. That's right, you've had, you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. That's all true. And if you think she was uncomfortable at the beginning of this conversation, how uncomfortable is she right now as Jesus exposes this deep pain in her life? What do you think she's feeling? What do you think she's experiencing? She hurt? She humiliated? She experienced grief or anger? How would you respond? How do you respond when someone points out an unpleasant fact about you or a failure or five in your life? When someone corrects you, are you like, 
uh, do you withdraw with contempt? Or are you like leaning in and saying, oh boy, this is a great opportunity for me to learn something and grow? It's uncomfortable, but this woman leans in. She could have walked away. She could have walked away at any time, but she continues to lean in. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's demonstrating a very high tolerance for discomfort. And whatever it is that Jesus is actually offering, she's open to receiving it. And instead of walking away, she leans in. She says, I can see that you were sent by God, that you might be one of God's messengers. So, so tell me this. My people used to worship on this mountain before the Jews burned down the temple 150 years ago. And now you Jews tell us that we have to go to Jerusalem to worship. Listen, we have very different ideas about worship and about what that looks like. And I'm not sure if she's picking a fight with Jesus or if she's actually saying, teach me how to worship God. I want to know. My, my life is broken, and I want to know this God, and I want to be able to worship this God. But what we do know is that there's a lot of tension and Jesus doesn't remove the tension. He doesn't, like, make it comfortable for her. He actually says, listen, you Samaritans, you don't know what you worship. We Jews know who we worship. And he says, in fact, there's a time coming. There's a time right now where it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free, a man or a woman. You can worship God wherever you are, just as you are. And the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Whoop, there it is. She could have walked away at any time that it got uncomfortable, but she hung in there, and now here it is, the great reveal, and her mind is blown. She's sitting there, Jesus is explaining this, and she's, she's like, I already know the Messiah is coming. And he'll explain everything to us when he, once he gets here. We don't know. I don't need you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You know all about the Messiah. Now meet him. I'm right here. Right in front of you. Like mind blown. She has this incredible encounter with Jesus. The big payoff for all that discomfort she experienced. Author Brene Brown says that learning by its nature is not comfortable. It's challenging uh, the ideas, it's pushing against old ideas, it's, it's change in our lives. And, and she points out that we are emotionally attached to our beliefs and to the, our way of life and seeing the world. And the minute that somebody pushes up against that, that challenges it, that tries to, to correct it, our response is often, often emotional because we have these deep emotional connections to what we believe. Thinking and behaving take a back seat to our feelings in these situations. And we, we get defensive, we get maybe we feel afraid, maybe we feel anger, but it can create uncomfortable situations. It just happens. And, and then what happens is our brains immediately try to create a story in order to keep us safe because our brains need a pattern. And one of the best ways to form this pattern to keep us safe is by coming up with a story. And it doesn't have to be a good story. So what typically happens is it, it can be a bad story. And so we get, we get left with this kind of crappy first draft because that, the, the brain gets rewarded with that as long as it has something to cling to. And what Brene Brown says is that it's what we do with our emotions and with this first draft that determines whether we will learn and grow as people and whether we will learn and grow in our relationships. And those who grow are the ones 
who won't settle for this really bad first draft. They step back and they examine it. And they begin to ask questions and they begin to explore some of these uncomfortable feelings and these strong responses they're having to things. And they ask, what is it exactly that I'm feeling? And why am I feeling this way? What's the story behind these feelings? And is what I believe or the way I see the life, the way I live, is it based on these feelings or is there some fact behind these feelings? And what are those facts to this situation? What do I know about this right now? And what do I know about this person who's challenging me and confronting me with these different ideas and different thoughts? What do I know about myself? What more do I need to know? And then what do I do with this new information? And by diving into this uncomfortable mess of fact and fiction and feelings, we can begin to write a new story. Maybe we get corrected. Maybe we we grow. Maybe we actually become more convinced that what we believe and the way we're living is the best way for us to be living and thinking and believing. G.K. Chesterton says the whole reason for opening up our mind is to close it again on something solid. I love that. That gives the opportunity for growth or standing firm on what we already know to be true. And, and Brown teaches graduate students, she teaches master's students, she teaches PhD students, she's taught some of the best leaders in the world from Pixar to West Point. She says the number one thing needed that we need to grow is a very high tolerance and respect for discomfort. It's the one thing we need in order to learn and grow, a very high tolerance for respect and discomfort. And back at the well, we see this in this Samaritan woman, and we see this whole process that she's explaining kind of played out. We see right away in her, in her narrative that she's got a bad first draft. It may have been a true first draft, but it was a bad one, that she has little or no value. Right? She, Jesus asked her for water. She says, no, I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. You're a man. I have no worth. This shouldn't even be, we shouldn't even be having this conversation. She could have walked away, but she hangs in there. He says, maybe he's going to show me something. He kind of leads her on with this idea of, I've got some, I've got some water, some magic water for you. And so she, so she hangs in there and, and asks him some questions about that. And then Jesus reveals another uncomfortable truth. Takes her to a whole other level of discomfort and pain. But she, instead of walking away, leans in again. She says, maybe this guy is a prophet Maybe he's been sent by God. Who is this man? What can he tell me about God? My life is broken. My life's a mess. Maybe he can share with me something about who God is because I I want this God in my life. I need this God's help in my life. And her perseverance and her tolerance for discomfort pays off as she meets the Messiah, God in the flesh, the Savior. And all this makes me wonder, How many of the unresolved struggles in our own families or the church or our communities are the result of really bad, unexplored, unquestioned first drafts? How many of the problems on the national scene, whether it has to do with race or gender or politics or sexual orientation or hate and fear, might be resolved if we committed ourselves to getting uncomfortable and to having conversations and dialogue about some of the faulty scripts that have been handed to us by our culture or by religion or by the super-religious or even by our own families? How much of what keeps us from sharing in the life of Jesus together 
has to do with the fact that we've been given a lot of bad scripts based on bad information to tell us who a person is or what a group of people are. And what I just said may have made some of you uncomfortable, and that's okay. The disciples returned to see Jesus talking with a woman. And again, I think this is the whole reason Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus came this way, because I think the disciples have something to learn from this woman. And John tells us that they were surprised to see Jesus talking with this woman alone, because they too had a script that men and women should not be alone talking to one another. And yet, it's interesting because no one, not one of his disciples asked Jesus why he was speaking with this woman. And the woman leaves her jar, and she runs into town, and she goes and she tells everybody, listen, you've got to come see this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. I think he might be the Messiah. And the people from town come running out to see who Jesus, who this person is. And John concludes the story this way. He says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days don't you wonder what they talked about? I wonder if he did for them what he did for this woman. I wonder if he shared with them everything they ever did. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we, are no, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is amazing. Because of this woman's perseverance and tolerance for discomfort, not only his her life, does she encounter the Messiah, but the whole town, through her discomfort, encounters the Messiah. And I wonder about their own discomfort as they met with him. And I wonder, what would, what would you do when you heard her story? What would you do if you heard that the Messiah who told you, who could tell you everything you've ever done in your life was in town? Would you go running to him? Or would you go running away from him? All of the Samaritans run to him because they're eagerly awaiting the Messiah, waiting for the Savior to come. I think the disciples had something to learn from these Samaritans. They witnessed this whole thing, and they learned that if they're going to grow as followers of Jesus, they're going to have to get uncomfortable, or they're going to have to be comfortable getting uncomfortable with Jesus first. Maybe have some conversations that they don't always want to have with Jesus about themselves and about him and who he is. And then get uncomfortable with others as well. What does that look like for us? I want to share a story about what that's looked like for uh, me and for some of the people on our staff here recently at Orchard. Last summer, Bill Hybels was accused of mistreating some women that he worked with, uh, both at his church and uh, outside his church. Uh, he was a pastor at a mega church, uh, Willow Creek in Chicago. And uh, after the accusations come out, came out, he uh, resigned, and so did the entire board of Willow Creek Church. But that didn't stop the flow of pain from many in the church, especially the women who were uh, victims of Bill's treatment. But it also caused pain and discomfort to surface for women here at Orchard Hill Church who had experienced similar things. And so last fall, the senior leaders, along with some women and, uh, and Dave Bartlett, uh, agreed to um, enter into the uncomfortable and painful and deeply personal and honest dialogue about gender inequality, discrimination, and harassment in the workplace. Before I go any further, 
I want you to know that we have a very healthy team. In fact, the, the very fact that we could enter into this kind of conversation, I think, indicates the kind of healthy team that we have. I want to be clear that there is not an ongoing problem or issue or challenge as I share a little bit about this conversation, but the fact is we wanted to become an even healthier staff. We want to become a church that leads other churches in this area of how do we do men and women relationships in the workplace well and to be a leader for our community as well. So we agreed to meet first just to hear about the stories of our personal experiences around these issues. And I really can't begin to explain to you or describe how uncomfortable and painful this first meeting was. I mean, the tension was so high, you could just cut it with a knife. And then I sat there and I listened to these friends of mine, people I do life with and work with, share some really painful stories. It was just such a sharp pain. And most of these stories, again, were things that happened in their past. They were things that happened outside of the church. And yet some of the things were things that they had experienced here on a Sunday morning or on a team that they had been on before. And some of the stories I heard made me shake my head and say, there's no way that that should ever happen. And other stories that I heard made me a little defensive, and I wanted to reinterpret the experiences that these women had for them, try to explain that it was something else, because I started to feel defensive. Like, maybe if I didn't explain or reinterpret this, I was going to be blamed for mistreating women, or I was going to be lumped in with a group of people for how they had uh, experienced their hurt. I can tell you that I did not want to go to the second meeting. I don't think any of us, the men or women involved, really wanted to go to the second meeting. And if memory serves me right, it was even more painful than the first, because it seemed like the passion and the stories just kind of grew and got unleashed. Learning by its nature is uncomfortable, and it pushes against our beliefs, and it challenges us emotionally. But we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable if we're going to grow, if we're going to follow Jesus. We first have to get uncomfortable with Jesus and then with others. And so I had to pull myself back between meetings, and I had to kind of talk to God about this. Like, why is it that I am so defensive? What is it that I'm feeling? What is it that I'm afraid of? And I had to let Jesus speak to me about that and say that, you know, it, there's a chance, Jeff, that you have actually mistreated or disrespected or hurt women, even if it was unintentionally. You may have been part of the problem in the past. Part of the tension as well was it turns out that I had a really bad first draft. I believed that the problem was out there somewhere. It wasn't in our church. It was out in the world somewhere. Women in our church, there's no way that they would experience something like this. And suddenly there's a new reality staring me in the face. I wanted to just kind of put it back in the box, put it in the ground, bury it, pretend that it didn't exist at all. But I kept asking questions. And I had to ask, what do I know about these friends and what they're telling me? And I knew that I have great respect for these women. I knew that they took a risk to share their stories. I know that they're great leaders. I know that I'd follow them anywhere. I know that I want them on this team, and I want them to thrive on this team. So what do I know about their situation right now? I know that they've experienced painful things around this issue. And some of those things have happened here at this church while on our staff. So what do I need to do right now? 
I need to be respectful of their painful experiences and develop the tolerance for more uncomfortable conversations so that I can better understand the problem and know how to be part of the solution. I need to learn and grow. I need to have a more truthful narrative. And I can tell you, we had a third meeting. And it was an amazing meeting. And after going through that discomfort and hanging in there with each other, there was a new bond and a new optimism and a new hope about the culture that we're creating here at Orchard. And it was really exciting, but it took us going through that to be able to begin to establish a more truthful narrative. You know, Jesus says it's the truth that sets us free. I just wonder how many of our struggles in our homes and our communities are the result of having an untrue story about the way things really are. How many obstacles exist because we're just too uncomfortable to dive in and confront them? And what if Jesus is inviting us to join him in uncomfortable places with people who have had uncomfortable experiences or uncomfortable stories, or maybe the people themselves are uncomfortable for us? What if he's inviting us to get uncomfortable so that he can revise our stories with a true story? that sets us free. Will you pray with me? Father, I think about all of us in this room, and I have no idea what kinds of uncomfortable conversations or experiences that we need to explore, that we need to dive into, maybe with a friend or a family member. I think about these dear friends of mine. These are people I love and who love me, and I think about how uncomfortable it was, and sometimes we have to have these uncomfortable conversations with people maybe we don't love or respect, how much more uncomfortable that can be. God, I ask that you would give us the courage to dive in, to have these conversations, to know that you're already there waiting for us, and that, Lord, that as we have these, you, you will show us things about ourselves, you'll show us things about who you are, you'll remind us that you are the great rescuer and great restorer, And as we have these conversations with you, you'll free us and you'll encourage us and you'll strengthen us to go have uncomfortable conversations with other people so that you can show us how to bring more of the life you have for us to the broken world around us. It's in your name we pray.